Habakkuk, the 33rd talk in a series on the book of Hebrews, was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 12, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. I'm going to continue on in our study of the book of Hebrews by not going to the book of Hebrews today. I want to look at the prophet Habakkuk. There's a method to my madness. We are, we are just on the verge of a section where Paul is going to quote Habakkuk in the text of Hebrews. And it's a, it's a passage that is significantly important, and I think we need to take a look at it and understand what's going on in Habakkuk in order to understand what Paul is saying. But So um, it, it's worth just taking a whole Sunday to to deal with Habakkuk itself. So I am, I'm, uh, we are beginning to return to Hebrews, but we won't be in Hebrews today. In the passage that's coming up, let me read it out of the New American Standard. Uh, I'll have my own translation next week, but we'll eventually get to this section at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews. He says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public, spec- a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to, to the preserving of the soul." Well, it's this passage that he quotes right there at the end. He who is coming will come and will not delay, or we we may translate that, that which is coming will come and it will not delay. Uh, But my righteous one shall live by faith. We'll look at that. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, there's a lot of issues around that, and we'll look at those next week when we get into the book of Hebrews. But this paragraph, this larger paragraph that this is a part of, is the most explicit uh, part of all of Hebrews to give us some background into why the letter of Hebrews is written. They are being persecuted, and he's very explicit about that. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public, public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, 
knowing that you, you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So they've been imprisoned. They've, been, they've had their property taken from them. They have gone, they've been mocked and held in contempt. They've endured reproach and various kinds of tribulation. And all of that because they are followers of Jesus. And as we've seen then, the issue in Hebrews is because they're experiencing all that, they're beginning to wonder, is this worth it? Is it worth it to be a follower of Jesus if all it's going to get me is prison and being ripped off and being mocked and held in contempt and being beaten up and undergoing tribulation of one kind or another? Is it worth it? And many of them are beginning to return to the Judaism that they were born into and saying, forget it, to Jesus. And that's what's prompted Paul to write the letter to the Hebrews to begin with. Well, it's in, it's in that context that he quotes Habakkuk. Now, I want to deal with a larger question here, and that's why I want to take the time that I'm taking on Habakkuk. In three of Paul's letters, Paul quotes the same passage in Habakkuk. It's obviously very important to him, a very important uh, proof text for him. Romans is short. In the first chapter of Romans, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, now he quotes Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians is a little bit more involved uh, in, a, in a passage, a very, very intricate and very important passage in Galatians that to do it justice, we'd have to uh, unpack and analyze the whole argument, and I won't take the time to do that now. Our translations mislead us in, in, in Galatians, I'm afraid. Uh, one day we'll get there. But out of the New, New American Standard, it says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, another passage that Paul quotes a lot. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are, of, who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for, now he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not, now this translation has, however, the law is not of faith. I will retranslate that. However, the law does not exclude faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then then we've already looked at the Hebrews passage. So in those three places, Habakkuk shows up, three of Paul's most important letters in articulating the heart and soul of the gospel, he, he goes to this Habakkuk passage to reinforce his point. The issue is, what is Paul making this stuff up, or is he discovering something in Habakkuk that really is there? 
Now, why, why do I even ask the question? Because for me, at least, it's critical that Paul be discovering something that really is there and not making up something out of his own clever ingenuity of some kind. I don't want this to be Paul's idea. I want this to be God's idea if I'm going to invest my life in it, if I'm going to commit my life to it. It's important that it's the truth. The objective truth about what God is doing in history has been doing from the beginning of time and will continue to do to the end of time. If this is just some novel religion that Paul invented somewhere in the middle of history and faked a bunch of us out and got us going down this track of believing his gospel, his version of the gospel, which is not at all foreseen by the prophets, it wasn't at all in mind, in the, in the minds of the prophets, but he just, he just did a sleight of hand and made us think that it is, then I don't want to believe it. I don't want to invest my life in something that's a, that's a fiction. Uh, for Christmas, our daughter got us a uh, little app that allows us to watch British television. So we found a documentary where, that was hosted or narrated, kind of hosted, by David Suchet, the guy who plays Poirot in the, in the Poirot Mysteries, where we really like him. But what was, what was phenomenal about that is the script, everything that was said, everything that was assumed from beginning to end, it was shot through with the assumption that Christianity was invented by Paul. So he kept asking questions like, now why would, why would Paul want to think that? And why would Paul want to go that direction in, in his doctrine and his theology? And, and what was motivating him and, and, and that kind of thing? If, if you stop to think about it, our museums, what we hear on television, the documentaries, everything we're exposed to, the underlying assumption is this is a human invention. It, it didn't even cross their minds that Paul took the direction that he did in his theology because he discovered that it was true. And it's because it was the truth that he proclaimed what he was proclaiming. That wasn't even an option in this thing. Well, on the one hand, is, is that possible? Sure. It's possible this is all an invention. But if it is, unlike uh, David Suchet and and people of that ilk, I'm not interested in it if it's not the truth. I mean, you can like it, like you like Beethoven's Night Symphony or something like that. You can like it as a creation of Paul, genius, uh, clever, powerful, impetuous person that he was who had such an impact on history. You can admire him for the, the craft of it and for the... the the character and person behind it. If you want to, that's fine. But it's not true. And however much I may appreciate uh, what he has done and what he's accomplished in history, it's not worth investing my life in it if it's not true. Well, this is not unique to Habakkuk. This is true of everything that you find quoted in the New Testament by the Old Testament. We have to ask the question... Is, are, are the New Testament writers discovering what was actually there in the Old Testament text? Or are they twisting it and distorting it and changing it and transforming it so it says something that it doesn't say? If that's what they're doing, I, I'm not interested, and I would suggest that 
it makes no sense for you to be interested either. So let's look at Habakkuk 2 and see if we can determine that in Habakkuk 2. In Romans, at a minimum, what, what Paul seems, the point that Paul seems to make in Romans when he quotes it is that life comes to those people, dikaiosune, uh, dikaiosune, remember, as being pardoned for the evil that I am and being blessed with the life that I don't deserve. It's a, it's a single word that, that basically carries those, those two ideas in it. I'm being pardoned for my sin, and I'm being granted a blessing that I don't inherently deserve. That's dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is on the basis of belief, and implicitly in Romans, and not on the basis of works of the law. That's exactly the point, explicitly the point, that he makes in Galatians. Dikaiosune comes to those who believe. It doesn't come to those who are practicing the law or keeping the law. And we'll probably have more to say about that a little bit later. In Hebrews, it's a little bit more complicated. He quotes more of Habakkuk. He includes more of it. Uh, He seems to require that it is implied in Habakkuk that belief is the essential condition for being granted eternal life. Secondly, that it's belief that perseveres through testing that is essential condition for being granted eternal life. Thirdly, the point at which the reward of life will, be, will come to us is when God's promise finally comes to be realized. And Paul implies in Hebrews it's sometime after he's writing the book of Hebrews. So it hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen when Jesus came. Paul is still looking forward to it. And he's recommending his readers to still look forward to it. Yeah, so, so those three things. The question is, does Habakkuk support that? Can you find that in Habakkuk, or is Paul reading it into there? Well, let's go to Habakkuk and see what we can do. The biggest problem, the, the, more, I, the more I look at them, and I'm, I'm still not really a student of the prophets by any stretch of the imagination, I've always been taken there from the New Testament. So I have a lot to learn about the prophets, but what's becoming really clear to me is that any prophecy is impossible to understand if you don't get rightly oriented to who is the prophet talking to, to what end, answering what question, addressing what issue, in what circumstances. If we don't understand that, this is just a bunch of Hebrew words being thrown at you. And most of my, most of my life, I've gone to the prophets, and I haven't got anything out of them because you just got these barrage of words coming at you. I understand each word. I can even understand the sentence, but I have no idea why he's composing that sentence and what it has to do with anything. So it's critical that we get rightly oriented to the occasion upon which he's speaking and why he's speaking it, or or it's hopeless. I'm going to read it a chunk at a time and just kind of build my case as we go here. Habakkuk begins, it's a short book, three chapters, but the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, now notice it says that the prophet saw throughout all of Habakkuk, he's going to be talking about a vision that he has received. So this is something that he has seen. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Yahweh, will I call for help 
and you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Okay, now the voice is going to change to God. But it begins with Habakkuk complaining. He's complaining to God about the violence, the iniquity, the wickedness, the destruction, the strife, the contention, but, and most importantly, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. Now, we have to put that back in his context. It's not the law like we would think of the law. We're talking about the law of Moses. So it seems apparent, I would argue, that what Habakkuk is complaining about is the wickedness, the evil, the lawlessness of his own people, the Jews. Now, for a variety of reasons, um, I would argue that Habakkuk is prophesying to the southern kingdom, Judah, in all likelihood after the northern kingdom has already been wiped out and destroyed. He's prophesying to the southern kingdom, kingdom, Judah, and he's looking and seeing that they are not living the righteous lives that God would want them to live. And he... Uh, Habakkuk is exercised by that. He's bothered by that. It's troubling him that they are such an unrighteous people. They ought not to be. So in response to his complaint about Judah and the Jews, God responds to Habakkuk. And starting with verse 5, we have God responding. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And everyone I have ever seen identifies the Chaldeans here with the Babylonians. So he's basically saying, I'm I'm raising up the Babylonians, uh, essentially, to come and judge Judah. Which we know from the rest of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Okay, so he describes in poetic and very, very graphic terms how formidable these Babylonians are going to prove to be. They are they're arrogant, they're contemptuous, they're shameless, they have no fear of anybody. Uh, other kings, they're just going to conquer them. They're just going to destroy them. They're, they're going to be a, a formidable force in the world, which indeed they were, as, it, as history showed. 
Um, so he says, no worries, Habakkuk. I'm going to judge Israel for their sins and for their godlessness and their wickedness and violence. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to bring this formidable force against them, this people who will, who will destroy them as they destroy and conquer all the rest of the world. Jude is going to be judged by them. Now, he drops in here, but it sort of gets lost on Habakkuk. But notice he, get, he drops in here in verse 11. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Now, I, I'm, basically what we're going to see is, I think that's the theme of Habakkuk, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. So they're, they're not going to get off scot-free, but that's not mainly what he's saying to Habakkuk at this point. Mainly what he's saying to Habakkuk is, Judah's going to be decimated by this people that I'm raising up that'll be coming. Well, now we move back to Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is bothered by God's answer. He's, he's very disturbed by God's answer. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You will not die. You, O Yahweh, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Uh, the Chaldeans, New American Standard supplies the Chaldeans, maybe, maybe not. The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn in- incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net? and continually slay nations without sparing? So his concern is, yeah, the Jews and Judah are evil and wicked and violent and unjust people. That's true. But Babylonians are worse. The Babylonians are treacherous. And at least, at least the people in Judah pretend to worship you, God. The Babylonians don't worship you. They don't honor you. They have no respect for you. They have their own gods, and they think their own gods have made them invincible, have made them an indomitable power, and are going to march throughout the world and take it over. And they're giving all the credit to their gods. They are utterly godless, God, (laughs) Yahweh. So, yes, your people, Judah, needs to be chastised. They need to be judged. But... Why would you allow such an evil people as as you describe the Babylonians to be, why would you allow them to have the upper hand over your own people? Why allow the unrighteous to swallow up the righteous like there were just so many fish that they're fishing for, to catch them in their nets and devour them? 
that there's something, there's something inappropriate about that God. Notice how he started this section. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You, O Yahweh, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It's not like you, God, to approve of wickedness, to look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So the, the injustice, the, unright, the seeming unrighteousness of allowing wick, a wicked people to prevail over a sinful people, but not as wicked as, uh, as the Babylonians, why would you do that, God? There's something unjust about all this. So then we come to the section, that, and I'm, I'm going to skip over it here, but let me just comment as we do. He, he, he now shifts to say, I'm going to wait for an answer. I need an answer to that question. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. I, I think it, it's implied here that uh, Habakkuk is basically kind of has scolded God. You know, he's, he's sort of filled with a kind of moral indignation, indignation and he realizes that God may want to reprove him, but I, I need to hear him out. I need to hear what, how God is going to respond to my charge against him. Okay, then we have the section that Paul quotes from. Then Yahweh answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Now, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. What vision? Is it chapter 1? Record chapter 1 on tablets? Um, I'm going to argue, no, I don't think so. We don't know what vision he's inscribing on tablets. And that's the challenge of Habakkuk, is to figure out what that vision is. What's this vision that he's going to inscribe on tablets that the one who reads it may run? For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It toward the goal and it will not fail though it tarries wait for it and it will certainly come it will not delay behold as for the proud one his soul is not right within him but the righteous man will live by his faith okay, I'm going to retranslate a bunch of that but that's the section it's, it's the end there 2-4 that Paul quotes the one who is righteous by virtue of his faith will live Okay, then at 2.5, we enter the next section of Habakkuk. What, what is this all about? What's he doing here? I think what makes the most sense to me is that Habakkuk has received a vision. We don't know what that vision is. He hasn't described it, not yet anyway. He's, he's received this vision, and he's inscribing it on tablets so that the one who reads it may run. Now, based on what that vision is and what the import and significance of that vision is, Habakkuk now speaks and spells out some of the implications of that vision that he's just received. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. 
he also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Now, I, I think Habakkuk is describing here, if not Babylon, uh, other people groups who, like Babylon, are unrighteous people who make it their ambition to conquer the world, uh, to deal treacherously and violently and destructively with the world. And in their arrogance, they, they go out and make, build empires. Whether it's Babylon or more general, that's part of what we need to decide. The next verse Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because, because you have looted many nations All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Whatever the vision was, it seems to be suggesting to Habakkuk that there's going to be this great inversion that's going to take place. The arrogant, haughty people groups who take it upon themselves to treacherously, violently... um, rapaciously go out and rob the nations and destroy the nations in order to make it their own, they are going to have the nations turn on them. They will be defeated and humiliated, and the other peoples will triumph over them. So whatever the vision is. So there's going to be this inversion where the unrighteous evil conquerors who seemingly are able to to travel around the world and not be stopped are going to meet their end. They, that, that is not going to continue. So something in the vision has suggested to Habakkuk, woe to you, people like Babylon, Babylon and people like Babylon. Then he has another woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. I think this is the same thing. He's just simply using a metaphor. He's using the metaphor of an evil person building a house to put his nest on high, but he seems to be talking about, when he talks about cutting off many peoples, he seems to be talking, out what, uh, talking about what the Babylonians are about to do and what any imperialistic, godless people does in the land. Then another woe, starting with verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from Yahweh of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Now, I think something gets lost in translation here. I think what he's saying is, don't, don't we get this from Yahweh himself? That peoples like the Babylonians, all of these imperialistic people groups, 
aren't they toiling? It says for fire, but I, th- I think the idea is for ashes. Aren't they toiling for ashes? Aren't the nations growing weary, pursuing nothing? That is, from, from the larger scheme of things, these people that look like they are on top, look like they are being victorious, look like they are winning, in the end, they're going to come up with nothing but empty air and ashes. They're putting all this effort into nothing that's going to pay off. Because in the end, he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That's what counts. That's what's not nothing. That's what's not ashes if you've thrown in your lot with Yahweh who is going to uh, fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory like the waters cover the sea. That's what you need to invest in if you're going to invest in something substantial. But all these people are just chasing wind, and they're not going to, in the final analysis, nothing is going to come to them for it. Then another woe. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of Yahweh's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants." So again, I think it's a metaphor, like an individual trying to get somebody drunk and take advantage of them. That's what these nations are doing to uh, weaker nations. And particularly the weaker nations that he always has in mind here, I think, are God's people, the Jews, taking advantage of God's people, the Jews. But just like an individual might try to get somebody drunk to take advantage of them, that's what these nations have been doing to God's people, Israel. Well, God's going to reverse the fortunes eventually. They are going to be disgraced. They are going to be dishonored. God will make them drunk and take advantage of them. And then one last woe. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood, For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And here he's basically saying, Like the Babylonians... All the godless peoples of the world who try to go out and conquer weaker, weaker, weaker peoples, take advantage of God's people, the Jews, all those nations have placed their trust in some god, in basically a false god, an idol. What good is that god going to do you in the day when Yahweh decides he's going to set things right? They're going to protect you. They're going to help you. They're going to deliver you. They're going to give strength to conquer? No, they are nothing but a piece of wood covered with gold and silver, maybe. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
God is Yahweh is the only God that counts. Okay, then we have seemingly tacked on to Habakkuk, the last chapter, which is a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to somebody. (laughs) This is probably a psalm that is played according to some instrument. Yahweh, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, it begins with him saying, I've heard the report. Now, what I'm going to argue is, I think this prayer is a response to the vision that was referred to earlier. Whatever this vision was, now Habakkuk has got God's answer. By way of that vision, God answered him about, what about the unrighteous triumphing over the righteous? What's with that, God? Well, the vision somehow answers that question. And Habakkuk is so taken with the answer that he, he begins with, Yahweh, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known, but in wrath remember mercy. I think what he's saying is, whatever that vision was, please get on with it. I think he was praying Bob's prayer. God, we're ready. We're ready for you to make things right. We're ready to be done with the evil and the injustice and the the, the perversion of truth and justice that's all around us now. If your vision is saying that you're going to set it right, then revive your work right now in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. But then he adds this very interesting thing. But in wrath, remember mercy. When, when you do this thing, which apparently is a thing of wrath, right? When you do this thing of wrath, uh, don't forget mercy. Okay? That's, that's Habakkuk's plea. Now, from 3 on, I think all the way to 15, what makes the most sense to me is now we have a report of what he saw in the vision that, that he was talking about. Now, I... It it could be a digestion of it. It could be only a part of it. It could only be the gist of it. I'm not not saying this just is the vision, but I think he's retelling what it is that he gleaned from the vision that he he received. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Let me back up. When he says God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Mount Paran is the range of mountains that Mount Sinai, some people believe, was a part of. In, in any case, it does seem to be the mountains that are the mountains of God that are identified as the, the origin and home of, of Yahweh. So it's God uh, coming from his abode to act basically, seems to be the imagery here. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations 
Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. So this is an image of God coming in his power. The whole earth and everything in it and all the nations before him cannot are no match to his power. And it's a very fearful, awesome kind of um, coming of Yahweh into history. I saw the tents of Kishon under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did Yahweh rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your golden spear. This, I think, is a metaphor for God coming against all the heathen Gentile peoples who have come up against God, as represented, I think, by the rivers and the sea and so on. So God is coming in uh, marching against them, coming in combat against them to destroy them. What he says metaphorically there, now he's going to say more literally, In starting with 12. In indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed into Scatterus. Their, exult- their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. So it seems to me that whatever the vision was that Habakkuk got, that he was supposed to record on tablets plainly so that whoever read it might run, was a description of the event that in Habakkuk's prayer, he's representing it to us here, as God coming in his chariots with his horses, trampling on the rivers, trampling on the sea, uh, trampling on the nations, marching throughout the earth. And why is he doing this? Well, he tells us, verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, remember, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, for the salvation of your Messiah. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. So it it could very well be that this is a description of slicing from neck to tail the dragon. And you you think of Revelation where Satan is, is depicted as a great large dragon who is the force behind all of the geopolitical powers that are arrayed against Israel. There could be some parallel here. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed into Scatterus. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. 
but you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. So it's this imagery describing an event where God is going to vindicate his people, vindicate his Messiah, I think, and is going to set the world right. No longer will injustice, wickedness, idolatry, evil triumph over righteousness, but rather by God through his Messiah, God is going to triumph over evil and have the upper hand over them. And then Habakkuk ends it with comments of his own again now. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God, the Lord Yahweh is my strength and he has made, me, he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. And then he he just has choir directions after that. There, I think, Habakkuk is is ending the thing with a very, very, very personal note. It scared me to death. This vision scared me to death because I I realized that the, the course of history is such that unrighteous people are going to triumph over righteous people. They just are. They're going to sometimes decimate them. They're going to uh, deal violently with them. The Babylonians, he told me, first thing, the Babylonians are coming, so I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us, and I think he means at this point in his lifetime. The Babylonians are coming, and there ain't nothing I can do about it. They're, They're going to come, and they're going to be violent, and they're going to overpower us. But then he has this wonderful statement that he makes. Though the fig tree should not blossom, because the plants were decimated by the Babylonians overrunning the land, though there be no fruit on the vines, because they trampled down our vineyards, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, for the same reason, the Babylonians got them, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold because the Babylonians stole them and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now, why? Because though, though I may suffer, though I may suffer deprivation, though I may suffer violence done against me, Yet I have seen the vision of what God intend, how God intends to resolve history. And how does God intend to resolve history? By destroying the forces of evil and turning the injustice of, this, of history and this, the injustice of this world on its head and allowing the righteous to prevail over the unrighteous in the end. Yahweh God is my strength. He has made my like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. I've never understood, I mean, that gets quoted a lot, um, feet on hind, or 
It made my feet like Heinz feet. I've never understood what that meant, but I think I do now. Um, I think he's talking about the, uh, those mountain goats who can climb up there on, on slopes that for any one of us, we would never venture out there because it's so precarious. But they just dance their little feet out there and, and eat whatever they want to eat at, at what would seem like great risk to themselves. But God has made their feet like Heinz feet. God has made our feet like, like Heinz feet. We, we may find ourselves in very precarious situations and precarious circumstances in this life. But he's given us the ability to say what Habakkuk said. Though the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Well, that's a miracle that any of us can take that perspective, that we can be so far-sighted in our perspective that, we are, that our hope is in how history is going to resolve itself, not in how my life is going to go right now. But to have that perspective is to be like a mountain goat able to, to walk on treacherous slopes without, uh, without being destroyed. Okay, rats. I think what I'm going to have to do, because I'm running out of time, is I'll leave the section that I skipped for next week uh, or, or at the appropriate time in Hebrews when we get there, and we'll look at the details of that in, in, more, uh, in greater depth. But basically the conclusion that I've come to is that the vision that he says, he tells Habakkuk to write on tablets, I think is the vision of what other prophets call the great and terrible day of the Lord the day of wrath, the day of the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation, is there's, there's coming a day where the enemies of God and his people are one more time, just like they have many, many times through history, are one more time coming up against the Jews to destroy them. But on this one great and terrible day of the Lord, this is not going to be God just saving his people so that history can go on. This is going to be the watershed event in history. This is the day where Habakkuk's complaint is going to be answered. God, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Why, Why would you favor the wicked over the righteous? Well, the day is going to come where that's going to stop. God will no longer favor the wicked over the righteous and grant them ascendancy and power to to devour and crunch the righteous people. On that day, as so many prophets put it, you won't be slaves to the nation's Jews. They will be slaves on that day. That great day, that great inversion where the tables will be turned. God is going to destroy the enemies that come up against Israel and he's going to come and establish the kingdom of God that he's promised in so many different ways uh, where his anointed one will rule, his Messiah will rule, will rule over the people of Israel and they will no longer be under the thumb, trampled under the foot of the nations, but rather the nations will be, if anything, trampled under their feet. That's not actually, I don't know if anybody actually says that, but um, the nations will be subservient to them 
will serve them, will honor them, will accede to them. That day is going to come, he says. And I think what Habakkuk was supposed to just put on the tablets is a prediction that that day is coming. So when he says, if you... We'll have to look at the text there, but there's going to be two kinds of responses that people can make to that prediction coming. They may... One may hesitate and shrink back from believing what God's vision has declared, or they may believe what God's vision has declared. He says, if you hesitate and shrink back from believing it, my soul is not pleased with you. God does not find it pleasing for a person to somehow not find it within himself or herself to believe that God is going to set things right on the great and terrible day of the Lord. But if, if you do find it within you to believe what God is saying there, he says, then that man who is righteous by virtue of his believing will be granted life. And that's what is so significant to Paul and why he quotes it three times in the New Testament is Habakkuk is describing quite, quite independently of the law and keeping the law and anything else that you as a Jew might expect to be linked to who's going to get eternal life, Paul says, look what Habakkuk says. If you simply believe God's declaration that the injustice is not going to continue forever, God is going to set things right. If you believe that, that belief makes you dikaios in God's eyes and therefore you will receive mercy and the eternal life that goes to those people upon whom God shows mercy. So Paul's going to eventually say, well, that's kind of like what I'm declaring. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Now, there's a whole lot more I need to say about that, but I think I'm going to save it for a, for a future Sunday. Let me open it up to your questions. Was this when King Hezekiah was ruling, or was this before? Or what? Do, do we know? I'm not sure. So we don't know how far in advance this happened before the Babylonians came? At least I don't. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, my sense is that nobody really knows for sure. I don't think they know exactly when this happened. I'm just wondering, these woes that he... The woes in chapter 2, uh-huh. are they at all a description of this vision? I mean, is that... Well, I think they are, a, they are a reaction to the vision. Okay. Because this great and terrible day of the Lord is going to happen, Habakkuk is saying to Babylonian-type peoples, woe to you. Mm-hmm. You, you may pretty, be pretty proud of yourself for conquering the earth, but it's going to end up nothing but ashes to you in the yeah. end. This is get you anywhere. Yeah. He, just, he talks about them being plundered by those that they plundered. Exactly. And that, and just, it's kind of like... The vision. I mean, to me, I guess I've always read this as just a description of what he'd seen. I, I missed a couple words I, there. I have read, read this before as a description of actually what he's seen, that they oh, would oh. be plundered and that they would do okay. these awful things, but they'd be, it'd be reversed on them. Yeah, and, yes. I, and I think that's possible. Uh, it's impossible to, yeah, de- yeah. to determine exactly what the vision did or did not consist of, but yeah. at the very minimum... He, he realizes the implication of what he saw in the vision yeah. was such that for these reasons, woe to you. Yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't quite catch what you said at the end. Um, it sounded like you were saying in Habakkuk that God is saying, if you believe that I will set things right, you will be saved mm-hmm. to, to those at that time. Right. And that Paul is referring to that. But did you say he's saying something different, that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved? Right. And so that's, that's what I, I... I don't think I have time to, deal, to do justice to. The question we have to answer is, it's not the same belief. Right. What Habakkuk is calling them to believe in order to be saved is not what Paul is calling them to believe in order to be saved. So is Paul just being cute here and transforming it into a whole different thing than what Habakkuk intended? Or is Paul seeing something really profoundly true in what Habakkuk is saying that is supportive of his gospel that to believe in Jesus you'll have eternal life? I'm going to argue it's the latter. But we got some explaining to do. Before we so, can get there. so the question is why, if he's making a different point, why is he quoting Habakkuk? Well, because ultimately I think it's the same point. It's just on the surface, it looks like it's a different point. Okay. So we but just... I'm going to argue that when we, when we look more deeply into what Paul's gospel really asserts and then, and then see more deeply into what Habakkuk, his, his assertion asserts, we'll find it's the same assertion underneath. And you'll cover that next weekend? I guess so, yeah. Okay. Are you going to argue that the state of heart and mind of someone who is formed by faith oh, who told? will always have a positive reaction to God's declaration? Yeah, yeah. So whether he says it's going to rain tomorrow, then, well, then, the, I, then the faithful person will say, okay, then I'm going to prepare for rain. Yeah, but it, um, I, I don't think it's quite... I don't think God... I don't think you can just have the belief be just any old thing. Right. It can't just be something, believe this, arbor, you know, if you believe that Jesus was left-handed, you will be saved. I don't think that's going to work. Or if you believe that um, the Patriots are going to win the 2017 Super Bowl, you'll be saved. But what if God says they will? Pardon? What if God says they will? No, what I'm saying is that even if God says that, okay. that's fine. God can do that. But I don't think Paul can then use that as evidence for his gospel. Because I don't think it's... We've got to talk about that. Okay. In Habakkuk, it seems to be that um, <clears throat> all of the saving and condemning is along lines of nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet in Hebrews, it seems that the saving and condemning falls along the lines of unbelief and belief, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yet... In other prophetic books, including Revelation, it talks specifically, again, about nations and also sort of transnational ideas of believers and unbelievers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my grasp of that is that it's all playing out. All those things are playing out along lines of belief and unbelief and also along lines of nations. And So, for instance, talk for a second about... uh, if I'm a believer and I'm a citizen of some country, some nation that comes against Israel, but I'm a believer, what happens? Or how does that play in? I mean, I would guess it might be obvious, but I'd just like you to comment on that. Do you mean on, this, on the day that he's describing here? Well, let's say, let's be real specific. Let's say uh, it's some nation that is currently very hostile toward Israel. Okay, And I'm a, I'm a believer, and I happen to 
live in that nation. And I'm going to be saved, but my nation is going to be plundered, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, I, I think we have to recognize that there's really two very different independent streams of the story that God is creating. One is a, is a historical drama among nations, between nations, and the other is the story of individual salvations of individual people. And those, um, th- those are different stories. So let's say I'm a, a believer in Jesus in Saudi Arabia, something like that. I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, Arabia is hostile to God's people and wants them wiped off the face of the map and so on. As a resident there, I may suffer the consequences uh, when on, on any day that God comes to judge for his people and he brings destruction to the Saudi Arabians, I may get caught up in that. That may very well be true. Not because I'm condemned as an individual, my death is my liberty, is my freedom, is my redemption. So as an individual, my eternal destiny is secured. But I happen to be a resident and involved with and culturally a part of a people that's hostile to the people of God. So I don't think there's any protection for me as a believer if I'm a part of a people group that's hostile to God in history. But my eternal destiny is secured because I'm... And then remembering that part of what, well, the reason Habakkuk was saying what he was saying in the first chapter is that the Jews also... Right. We're hostile toward God. Right. So there's some relative there's some relativity going on here. Right. Some are more hostile than others, but right. all are hostile. Right. Yeah, they're, they're and so he says, In your wrath remember mercy. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of the the seed that some he just will be merciful to? Right. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's part of Zechariah's recognition that when God comes in wrath, even down to the last individual we all deserve. What, what we get from the wrath of God. So pleading with him to remember mercy is, but don't forget that side of who you are because I'm counting on that. I need that. I'm dependent upon that. Is that it? Okay. So we'll uh, actually, we'll pick up immediately with the question that Logan and Denise were asking next week and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But eventually we'll make it back into the text of he- the argument of Hebrews. Okay.